0: So we're going to do things just a little uh, unorthodox tonight. We're actually going to be in 2 Kings 9, but we're going to actually start in 2 Kings chapter 10, then jam to Hosea. You can say I'm kind of calling it an audible. But if you make your way to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, that's going to be our beginning, but it's also our ending. Kind of a sneak peek at the end of the movie before it even rolls. 2 Kings 10, 30. And the Lord said to Yehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight. Okay, we got to make sure we got understand that. It's not too complicated. Because you've done what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab, all that was in my heart. Because God had called him. To, we'll see God's called him to this. Because you've done to the house of Ahab, all that was in my heart. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth day generation. We're going to see all of this in chapter 9. The word of the Lord is going to come to Elisha to go and anoint Jehu uh, as king over Israel because God has raised him up for a very specific mission. I, I want to underline these words, my sight and my heart in verse 30. It's just the way God sees it. You know, as we travel through chapters nine and ten of Second Kings, you've got to understand that all of this is divinely inspired by God. That's why I want to go to the book of Hosea before we start in chapter nine, so you can kind of get a firsthand look at the spiritual climate of the day. See, God doesn't just destroy people for the fun of it. God is a God of love. For God so loved the, but God demonstrates His own love towards us in that. That why we're still sinners, Christ died for us. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, and we love him because what? He He first loved us. But know this, when the sins of the world get so bad that it cannot fix itself, and that sin is starting to infect innocent children, judgment by God always comes. As we think about our own country or this own world please don't ever think that god doesn't see or god doesn't care oh no he does he does care because they're they are his children that his son died for that are being murdered god sees all this stuff when it gets too bad to where man can't govern himself well that part of the story has already been written god has stepped in and wiped out whole nations before and you and I, we know, because we just finished the book of Revelation. We know a day is coming when this entire heaven and earth is going to be destroyed. So that which we see tonight is not so uncommon. But please know this, a, a God of love that is watching people destroy one another, he has to act if he's a God of love. So here's the spiritual climate of the day. If you've made it to the book of Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Hosea was a prophet of the northern kingdom, or to, northern, to the nation of Israel. Remember the ten northern kings are up north. Samaria was its capital, with Judah down south, with Jerusalem as its capital, the two tribes there. And Hosea, for the most part, ministered to the northern kingdom with an occasional message to Judah. We would date the writing of Hosea's day around 761 plus or minus B.C., And when we get to 2 Kings chapter 9, it's going to be about 851 to 823 plus or minus B.C. So about 62 years after Jehu slides off the scene at the end of 2 Kings 10, God was seeking to get their attention with Jehu because the land is so bad. God commands Jehu or because the land is so bad here in Hosea. God commands Hosea to speak this message to his people. And we're going to see that God has Hosea do some pretty crazy things. If you ever doubt God could love you because you were sexually promiscuous in your past, meaning yesterday and beyond, this is a must read here. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord, by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry, a hooker, prostitute. And children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So the command of God is go take a wife who's a prostitute and you're going to have some kids with her. Israel as God's bride, has forsaken God and was playing the part of the prostitute as they worshipped other gods. They are committing spiritual adultery. So the picture here is quite fitting. And God wants the prophet to feel what he feels. So Hosea, the prophet of God, following God's words as an outward demonstration of God's love for his people in pursuing the harlot, the people who had been polluted by idols and were serving other gods through various crazy nonsense and destruction of life and immorality, and yet God here, as a God of grace and mercy, abounding in love and forgiveness, is going to have him, Hosea, as a living object lesson seeking i believe because he wants to extend mercy and forgiveness to the people of israel and so he's going to send hosea out to get a hooker so he goes out he marries one and and maybe she promised to be faithful at the beginning i don't know but if she did she had the hooker in her back pocket because that's not where the story ends. Because after he marries her, she proves to be what she is. She's a hooker, and she leaves him and goes back to her old employment. So Hosea has to go again, but this time he has to pay for her. Look at chapter three, verse one. You might want to underline verse one in chapter three if you know of someone or think you'll know you'll ever know of someone that has a shady past or even has a shady past present, and they're going, "Well, you know, I turn to Jesus, but this, oh no, this." I would know this and tell them God loves them right where they are. They just need to turn away from their sin and repent. So you can't say, well, I've done this. I can't. No, no, you have to turn away and repent and tell them to turn to God. He'll clean them up. But they got to turn. You can't say, you know, God and never turn. Man, you're not going to get in. I'm sorry. So look what it says here. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who's loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like, and I add these words, just like the nation of Israel's, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Wow. I think that's kind of a double amen here. Don't ever let the devil cause you to think that God's going to write you off. Look what he does here. I mean, God's going to, Verbal, visual, physical object lesson here. God, how God views his people. Yeah, you know what? You've sold yourself into harlotry, but I'm going to go buy you back. What's happening here? Let's look at chapter 6 while while we're here. Verse 1. Come, and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, Hosea says, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Nah, we don't want that. Let us know. Let us purpose the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Nah, we like famine. Oh, Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Oh, Judah, what shall I do to you for you? Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. I mean, this is what God has been wanting from the nation of Israel all along. This is what God has been wanting from his people all along. Come and return to the Lord is what God says here. Sadly, the northern kingdom doesn't repent. And 30 to 40 years later, the northern kingdom is fully wiped out in 721 B.C. They're carried away by the Assyrians. So as you flip back to 2 Kings chapter 9, God is nothing but just and fair as we read about him bringing judgment on some of the most ungodliest people of the Bible, but he does so because he's trying to wake them up. Definitely the worst woman in the scriptures, if not the worst family, is in 2 Kings 9 here. Verse 1, and Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, get yourself ready. I have a class assignment for you today, my young little Padawan. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now, when you arrive at that place, look there for Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. That's not Jehoshaphat down. That was the king of Judah. Different guy, different, different person, same name, the son of Nimshi. And go in and make him rise up from among his associates And take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil. Please don't think like a little small. Like you know a little vial here. And pour it on his head. And say thus says the Lord. I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. And do not delay. This guy Yehu is the one that's going to accomplish. All that's in God's heart. God's heart towards the house of Ahab. And so here's Elisha. Instructing one of the young prophets. To go and anoint him as king. Now. You're going, hasn't this happened before? Yeah, this isn't the first time this has been written. This has been in God's heart all the way back in the days of Elijah before Elisha. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, the Lord is telling Elijah, you shall also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall also anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah. You shall appoint as prophet in your place, so I'm sure Elijah obeyed the voice of the Lord there, back in 1 Kings chapter 19. But there's no record that he does other than right here. So Jehu or Jehu would be like David, who was anointed king. But then years later, after Saul got done chasing him and Saul was dead, he was anointed to be king again. Well, Yehu was was anointed by Elijah. Now he's going to be anointed by Elisha, as one of the young prophets, will go to Yehu and allow him to assume power. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. Yehu said, for which one of us. Notice there, you know, it's like none of them the commander. That's the king. And he said, for you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord of Israel. Now, the typical anointing in the Old Testament, the pouring of the oil on the head is, going to have it dripping. We don't do that. So when you read in James chapter 5, call the elders and have them anoint you, we don't douse people in Crisco oil like this one kid did at high school camp one time. Yeah, this is how we do it at a Costa Mesa. Nah, I'm pretty sure they don't. Yeah, it is. He yeah, this whole cup and he just goes, and it went everywhere. No, that's not how it happens. But this is what's happening here. It's a great picture of the Spirit coming upon him. Now, the instructions have been given but notice in verse 7 here there's more instructions he, he, he's done all he was supposed to do but now in verse 7 there's he, he there's verbiage here that Elisha never tells him and here's what he says this young prophet of the Lord obviously the Holy Ghost has come upon him and he says you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel, as the prophet here sent by Elisha speaks for the Lord God. But if you look back and see, Elisha never spoke this to him. So it's either A, not recorded, or B, the prophet with the Holy Ghost coming upon him speaks God's will to Yehu. You know, the thing that's so amazing to me in all of this is, he's going to go do it, this ungodly Man serving with the ungodly king, the northern kingdom never walked with God ever. And yet, when the prophets spoke like this, the ungodly people followed. it's amazing to me, and yet it's almost practical for you and I today. We're living in an ungodly land. I mean, I watched some cop shows on through the internet, and it's like, I can't, and it's like, nope, I'm not watching you again, because because they, they have to bring their agenda into a cop show, or the commercials, ever seen at and new commercial, with the two guys that are going out on a date, yeah, figure that out, it's like, okay, it's one thing if you're going to support it, but it's another thing if you're going to kind of jam it in my face, and, and yet, and yet, here these guys are. When when godly people speak to them, they respond. Church, my suggestion to you is is if we will speak into an ungodly nation, they will respond to God's truth, not to phony baloniness or that garbage. A lot of that garbage that's on TV, they're not going to respond to that. But I think they'll respond to truth. For your assignment, if you want to prove me wrong. Go, start, go back and start reading through the Judges and the Chronicles and the Kings. Every time some godly person stands up and speaks, the ungodliness that's doing whatever is right in their own eyes, they speak, they follow him. I mean, think about it. It's what's ha- I mean, remember Elisha led the Syrians into Samaria? And what did the king do? He did exactly as Elisha had told him. Even though the king, he didn't worship the true God of Elisha. Remember back in 1 Kings 18.4? God does. Let me read it to you. For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord. See, God is saying to Jehu Ye- Ye- here, it's payback time for me. I- I've given him time. There's been no, he- they have not been heeding the warning and vengeance is mine," That says the Lord. And he's going to act. It's not anybody else's. It's God's. It may not happen today or tomorrow, but you and I, we please, we need to know, please, God always keeps his word, and for these guys, he's going to pay it back, for you, when when that needs to happen, stay out of it, God will deal with it, don't stick your heart in it, and don't stick your face in it, God will deal with it, because vengeance is his, nobody gets away with it, messing with his kids, verse 7 again, as God raises one up to bring judgment to his people, The young prophet telling him, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. Anyone have an old King James here? Bummer. You might want to read verse 8 when you get home. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam. Don't look on your phone right now for the old King James. (laughs) You guys are so bad. So I'll make the house of Ahab, because then you're missing out on, you're missing what we got here. Just remember, verse 8, it's not complicated. Hey, Ocho, okay? So I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Aajah, the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. I mean, wouldn't you flee? Uh, you've just doused a commander, of actually a pretty, you know, he's like, he's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger guy. He's a he's the other guy. He's a bigger guy. <laughs> This Yehu is a mighty warrior. He's a captain of the king. And what has this prophet just done as he spoke these things and put the oil on Yehu? What has he just done? No, that's true. But what has he done from, from the king's point of view? He's committed treason against the king. I would flee. You open the guys on the same page with you right now. Then Yehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? You see that? That's how they perceived the young guy that came to these ungodly men, madmen. Maybe it's easy to see why they'd call him a madman. He's got oil dripping off his beard and off his hair. However in time, these other captains are going to come to realize that those who represented the Lord God were not madmen at all. It's a theme here. Certainly, Yehu did not. He didn't consider him a madman. And it appears these captains quickly get on board and respect the words of the true prophets of God. They respected what they had to say. Even though they didn't have any time for God, they respected the words. Christians have to speak truth. They may may not accept you, but they seem to respect the words. If it's true, you're not making stuff up. You know, the gospel is good news. It's not bad news. I think there's some real application here for us. We may appear as madmen from the world's perspective, but somewhere in their heart, when we accurately proclaim God's truth, they know in the hardness of their hearts it's true. We have a friend, Kenny in Santa Barbara, he he was a leukemia match. And so people asked him, hey, why are you doing this? And here's what he said. He goes, I told him I'm a Christian and we Christians do crazy stuff. And that's that's what's happening here. He told the hospital staff, it's not an option for me. This is what we Christians do. This is what us mad people do. And that's what the madman, a.k.a. God's man, is doing here. So Yehu said to them, you know the man and his babble. So notice it had nothing to do with the oil. It had everything to do with the words. You know, you know how they babble? These godly guys babble? It's only because he's afraid. He doesn't want to say. And they said, a lie. Tell us now. So Yehu said, thus and thus he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. As we get a very clear picture of how loyal these captains were to their wounded but recovering king. Then each man hastened. You want to know what the political climate of the day was like? Here you go. There wasn't a meeting. There wasn't a discussion. There is no voting. You mean, we got an opportunity to get rid of the King Ahab's descendants? Man, there's nothing here. Look, look at it. Then each man hastened about it to take his garment. You know, the young man just went from the madman to prophet of God in their eyes. But he had to take steps of faith for others to see it. For you and I to, to speak anything biblical worth anything, we have to take steps of faith. Actually, I don't even think we have to take steps. I think we have to pick up our foot and, And God places it, and he works right through our mouth. But you got to take a step. you got to pick up your foot and let God plan it. Each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Yehu is king. So at least Yehu has the backing of the leading commanders of the military. The putting of their cloak under him is their custom of saying, hey, we're behind you. Kind of like they did as they spread their clothes as Jesus was coming in to the city of Jerusalem. Remember, they spread all their clothes there. Hey, we're, we're with you. Of course, their devotion was short-lived, but that's a whole other Bible study. Verse 14. So Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. And I add, he conspired because of the word of the Lord. Now, Joram had been defeating defending Ramoth-Gilead, the same place that these captains are. He and all of Israel were there against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, said, if you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city where we are right now battling to go and tell it in Jezreel. Keep everybody here. He just kind of worked up a surprise battle plan with his military leaders for taking out the king of Israel. After all, he, he's just been appointed king by God. So, yea, he rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. So again, we have another king from the south up hanging out with the wicked kings of the north. Well, what's going to happen here is just Yehu is going to knock off two birds with one stone. Now, a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Yehu as he came, and he said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet him and let him say, is it peace? It's interesting. That's, that's, we, that's all the way down through this chapter. Is it peace? How would you like to live that way? Someone comes knocking on your door. Is, first thing you say is, is it peace? No, okay, I'm not opening the door. So the horseman went to meet him and and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Yehud said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Man, we're in the middle of a major vicious takeover. So the watchman reported saying the messenger went to him, but he's not coming back as the horseman obeys. Then he sent out a second horseman because he has not got the memo yet. And he came to them and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Yehu answered the same way, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me, for we're starting an aggressive cleansing of Ahab. So the watchman reported saying, He went up to him, but he's not coming back. And the driving, I've seen this driving before. There's only one who drives like this. I know this driving. His driving is like the driving of Yehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. No wonder everyone does what he says. Yet I am sure he also fought just as hard as he drove, and his men obviously respected him for it, just like David did as David fought alongside the troops and killed his tens of thousands and prevailed. Verse 21, the Joram said, make ready. Now, just think about this. You've got two. Com- you got the commander, Yehu, and whoever's coming with them, coming from a battle line. What do you think they're wearing? They're wearing their battle gear. Now the Bible doesn't say this, but but I, I I would I can't I find it hard to believe that they, they're not wearing battle gear. And if you are recovering from battle wounds, I'm pretty sure you're coming naked without battle gear on. You know, this is your this is one of your leading commanders. I mean, maybe he's coming to tell us we won. Are you really gonna suit up just to go out and see him? Now maybe put on a robe. And so his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. This is prophetic right here. And they went out to meet Yehu and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. That's prophetic right there. If you've been with us, Elijah Elijah prophesied what would happen to Ahab's family. You already know how it's going to turn out. You know, and here they are. Yehu and Joram, they just so happen to intersect on the property of Naboth. If you don't remember Naboth, you might want to go back and listen. As these two groups collide on the property of Naboth, it's a dead giveaway that God is so in charge here. Remember Naboth? Garden, vegetable, Jezebel, killed Ahab. Verse 22. Now it happened when Joram saw Yehu. He is not expecting a hostile takeover. But he does ask, is it peace, Yehu? So he answered, what peace, as long as the harlot trees of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? Run for us, run, head for the hills. I mean, Jehu, Yehu is done doing God's, when he's done doing God's work, goes and worships the golden cows. But for right now? He is focused on God's work of cleaning up the northern kingdom. And so Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, the king of Judah, treachery, Ahaziah. And so they both split as well. Now, Yehu drew his bow with full strength as he pulls pulls that feathered uh, end of the arrow all the way up to his chest. And he shot Jehoram, same person, same name, don't get confused here, between his arms. And the arrow came out his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. Now, it is quite possible, if we use our CSI skills here, I think we can tell which way he is fleeing. See, Jehoram is fleeing to the left. Trust me, I worked out, I created my own little model on my desk, I had two horses that were going different ways. And he's fleeing to the left as the arrow hit him between his arms in the back and it blew out through his side. Just go home and figure it out. Put a couple things over here. Stand here. Shoot an arrow. This one is going to move towards the left. This one's going to move towards the right. Your heart's not over here on the right side. It's more in the center. Maybe a little left. Now, he could be going straight. But if someone's going to kill you, are you going to go straight away in a straight line? No, you see the gangsters, when someone's trying to kill him, they roll under a car or something, like the guy that just got killed in New York. No, you're not going to go straight. You're going to move to his side. So little CSI skill, because it says it went through his heart, he's probably fleeing to life. Of course, I, I, I don't know why I share that with you. I thought it was rather fascinating for me. So if it doesn't fascinate you, that's okay. Forget about it. But go home and set a couple things up and go, oh, yeah, that's the way he went. Verse 25 as Jehu shows that he's truly God's pick for this assignment. Then Yehu said to Bidker, his captain, Pick him up and throw him into the track of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Watch this now. For remember, remember, Bidker, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him? Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord. And I will repay you in this plot of ground, says the Lord. Amazing, is it not, as Yehu sees himself now as the one fulfilling this prophecy. He's not a godly man. We're going to discover that. But right now he's doing God's bidding. Now, therefore, take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. To me, this is interesting in two ways. First of all, Yehu remembers something from years back that Elijah, not Elisha, Elisha's present right now. But back in 1 Kings, he remembers something that Elisha, the current prophet, had pronounced on Ahab. And secondly, Yehu is not exactly a spiritual giant. When we get to the end of chapter 10, Yehu was a long way from sainthood. Like, he probably didn't make it in on the good side of the afterlife. But he certainly speaks of a promise of God's word here. As you and I are faithful to throw it out there, God... Will be faithful, so his word does not return void without first accomplishing his purposes. I mean, this dude's been—I I doubt if he, he was thinking about it that morning. But all of a sudden, as it all happens, boom! Recall—it was—it it didn't return void. It just took a few years for it not to. Verse twenty-seven. But but, Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this. He fled by the road to Beth-hagan. So Yehu pursued him. And he did because God's directing him. Second Chronicles chapter 22, verse 7. If you want to put a footnote there and go look it up, His going to Joram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall. That's what it says in Second Chronicles 22. And so he said, hey, shoot him, also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Ger, which is by Iblim. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there, the same way the kings of the north died godless and his servants carried him in the chariot to jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of david in the eleventh year of joram the son of ahab ahaziah had become king over judah now when jehu had come to jezreel jezebel heard of it and she put paint on her eyes funny and adorned her head and looked through a window they say she was an extremely beautiful woman. Of course, a woman. Of course, she's a lot older now. So she paints the barn here, seeking to make her mug look a little attractive. And either that or she's so into herself, she's clueless as to what's going to happen. Then as Yehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? I mean, that, isn't this a crazy way to live? Again, it's, how do you like to live this way? By asking everyone who approaches you, is it peace? I wonder if that's how it is with the streets on the gangsters. Hey, is it good right now? Oh, yeah, then they shoot you. I mean, I mean, I don't know, but it's crazy. Well, the crazy lady here calls him Zimri. That's not his name. His name's Yehu. But she calls him Zimri because Zimri, the king's servant, back in 1 Kings 16, had assassinated his king, Baasha of Israel. Zemri had done that. And so, she, you know, she's thinking, hey, you've done that to our master. And he looked up in the window and said, who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked at him. If you need a definition of that, Mike will help you out with that. Then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down as we get another look into the political climate Of the day that Ahab had built with his wife and she still feed it. Nobody liked it. No one was into it except the kings of the south, it seems. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses. No mercy here. And he trampled her underfoot. He didn't get off and stomp her like grapes. No, he's doing it with the horses and his chariots. Do we have any Jezebel's? in our lives? Do you have any Jezebels in your life that's seeking to lure you away from the simplicity of your walk with Jesus? I'm not talking a person. It could be. But if you do, you need to cast her down and you need to let the horses kill her. Because if you don't, she will kill you. She will. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. Then he said as he's enjoying his meal. hey, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but the dogs had already got to her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. You see that? This is a pagan man repeating, remembering from years ago. I didn't go looking to see how long ago it was. But it's been a while. It wasn't yesterday. It wasn't last month. It wasn't last year. And so here he is. He's repeating it. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel, I add, in the ground in this grave. She didn't have one. That was cursed back then. If, If you and I never open our mouths and never speak spiritual things into people's lives, you might want to go read Ezekiel. You might want to go read Acts chapter 20. Just saying. As the as the word goes forth, it's going to do something in people's lives. God's word came to pass just like it had been prophesied 16 years earlier. Elijah had prophesied that the entire family of Ahab would be wiped out. And, and, and that's what chapter 10 is all about. Now, I have had 70 sons in Samaria. 70 sons would be a threat to a new king in town. And Jehu yeah, wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Aham's 70 sons, saying, Now, as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's 70 sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, you got some pretty heavy-duty weapons there, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his feet, father's throne declare him as king and fight for your master's house he's setting him up for a battle to find out who's loyal to ahab you guys got stuff come on out let's play but they were exceedingly afraid and said look two kings could not stand up to him you know the kings of the north and the kings of the south how then can we stand and he who was in charge of the house And he was in charge of the city. The elders also, and those who reared the 70 sons, said to Yehu, saying, We are your servants, man. We will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. You do what is good in your sight. So rather than trying to fight him, they're submitting to his leadership. Whatever you want, Yehu, you're the man. So then he wrote a second letter to them, saying, If you are with me and will obey my voice, Take the heads of the men, your master's sons, the seventy heads, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Okay, it's writing to the heads of the men. Heads of men, bring them to me. Now, the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them. They took the king's sons and slaughtered their 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. If you send them, you don't really go, right? You're having somebody else doing it for you. Then a messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So you got the gate, you got... You know, you got 35 or so on this side, 35 or so heads on this side all piled up as a a vivid object lesson for any that would think of rebelling against Yehu. Pretty graphic. So it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, You're righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. Okay, all the people don't know the letter. They just went to that big shots. And so Yahweh comes and says, You know, um, I conspired against my master and killed him. I, I killed one. I killed a woman, Jezebel. And I killed the king of the south. But who killed all 70 of these? Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. So ye killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, and all his great men. You know the ones that said, hey, we're not fighting against you. We'll kill them. Killed them. And his close acquaintances and his priests, until he left him none remaining. So, is God's anointing on this guy? I mean, Yehu is definitely declaring the certainty of God's word. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. And on the way there at Beth-Akad of the shepherds, Yehu met with the brothers of Azariah, king of Judah. Oops, wrong place, wrong time. And said, who are you? And they answered, we're the brothers of Ahaziah. They don't know he's dead (coughs) yet. We've come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen Mother. Oops. Wrong words. You mean you're coming to hang out with the dead people? And he said, Take them alive, so they took him alive. Some commentators would say he crossed the line here. I don't know. They're, they're worship they're idol worshippers. So they took him alive and killed them at the well of Aked, forty-two men, and he left none of them. Now when he departed from there, he met this interesting character. Named Yeho Nadab. That's how it's pro- phonetically pronounced in Hebrew. Yeho-Nadab. I don't know where the accent is. The son of Rechab. coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? And Yeho Nadab answered, It is. So Yehu must be doing something right. Yehu said, If it is, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up, and he took him up to him into his chariot. Now, here's what you need to know about Nadab. These people, they didn't drink. They didn't build houses. They didn't worship idols. They're kind of like, I don't know, they weren't hippies, but they're kind of like hippies. They just kind of lived off the land. But they didn't serve idols. So, this this guy right here, Yeho Nadab, he's the he was kind of like the dad of them all. And they lived out in the fields, not in the city. And his people obeyed him. And they not only obeyed him today, they obey him for hundreds of years. They don't drink, they worship God, they don't smoke, they don't build houses, they work off live off the land. So for today's trivia knowledge, Jeremiah will prove that these were godly people and that they listened to their forefather, you know, this guy here, yeho Nadab. But then Jeremiah will say, how come you people didn't listen to God? These guys followed their father, but you won't follow God. You have to read ahead. You'll find it. Verse 15. Yehu has him in his chariot, and he says to Yehonadab, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Danger, danger, double danger. You see it there? You see it there? Me, myself, and I, the trinity of stupidity. You see it there? My zeal. No, no, no. Come and see my obedience to the Lord God Almighty. See, pride setting in. It's about him. That's what happened to Saul. So they so they had him riding his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. I think it's important to note that Yehu is not zealous for the things of God like he thinks he is. He's more of a politician, maybe a military uh, leader. Well, find he doesn't really care about the things of God at all, but he does want to develop a loyal kingdom and get rid of any potential problems. That's what he's doing here. Then Yehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Yehu will serve him much. Now, the reason he's getting rid of them is because all of these people were loyal to Ahab. Jezebel was like, she was in love with Baal. Ahab builds her a temple, and so he's going to take them all out here. Now, if you were to stop right here in verse 18, you go, really? He's a Baal worshiper? I mean, I think, wow, he he ate the wrong fruit here. No, he's working on a battle plan. He's definitely a guy you'd want on your side. You know, Jezebel had introduced Baal worship in the northern kingdom, and He doesn't want any of that around. But but the other thing is, he's not going to destroy them so they can go worship Jehovah or Yahweh. No, no, no. Because he's going to go worship the golden cow. He's going to destroy them so they go back and worship the golden cows and no others so he can kind of keep them all kind of harnessed in here. Now, therefore, call to me the prophets of Baal and all his servants, all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing should not live. But Yehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal, as the commentator adds in. And Yehu said, Proclaim a solid assembly for Baal. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have a picnic on the party, on a party patio. So they proclaimed it. As all the gullible Baal worshipers are going, oh, it's about time someone recognizes us. Hey, I mean, seriously, wouldn't you think like, okay, wait a second. I understand they did not have cell phones or anything, but we're, but I guess word doesn't travel if you kill everybody when you go over and kill them <laughs> But I would think something would be finding out. But apparently, you know, then Yehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Oh, please, bring out the pretty vestments for all the worshipers of Baal to put on. We're going to have a really festive time. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Yehus and Nadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Oh, please search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you. We don't want any of those faithless type of God-worshipping people here. We only want the worshipers of Baal. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now, Yehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside. And it said, first of all, hide your swords in your robe. And if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Now, it happened, as soon as he had made an end of the offering, I don't know if Yehu was up there offering it, you know, went up there and torched it, that Yehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them all out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal and they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day, unless he destroyed Baal from Israel. Um, you, know, the, you know, obviously they're worshiping rocks, right? Um, if you ever go to Israel, don't go into the dome of the pagan rock because I didn't know this at the time, but when you give them money, they just use it to go buy bombs to kill Israelites. But I went in, me and I, we tried to smuggle cameras in. One of us got caught, me, because <laughs> we wanted to get pictures. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I didn't know, you know, we went in one at a time because that way we could watch our stuff. But I went in and, and, and so they got, you know, you've seen the dome and, and then they have the, you know, like the uh, barrier stuff, like at movie theaters, you know, to keep lines. So they have this, so here, here's the centerpiece. They got this whole centerpiece right here. And which is probably, I don't know, it's probably be a hundred feet across. And then they have this, this, the rope, like you see in a movie theater, about 15 feet away from it, all the way around it. And then, and then they have, uh, people are just walking around, sitting around, talking, praying. And then there's an underground spot. I thought, well, what the heck. So I, I go down in there. I, I mean, I'm just like as stupid as it gets. And, you know, that, that's where they're down there praying and you know what they're praying to? They're praying to a rock. So, so then I came out, I thought, well, what in the heck? So then I go and I, you know, it's like, well, I, I see there's a barrier here, but what the heck? So I just lift it up and go over and look over the fence because the fence was like five feet high. And there's a big old honking rock sticking up. But that's the part of the mountain. That's because they believe Muhammad went up right there. So they're worshiping the rock, just like these guys. And then some lady come up to me, she's bah, 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 and uh and I'm thinking, what in the world are you saying? And she goes, and she and she's saying, You Christian, our God, your God <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. Your God, not my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, your God, my God. <laughs> Three times. The third time I said, no, Jesus is God, and you have to turn to him and believe or you won't be saved. I've jammed outside. <laughs> it was a memorable experience. But I, but I, they're, they're just praying to a rock. I mean, it's crazy what the world will do when they lose sight of the one true God. Verse 29, however, had Yehu turned the people to God can you imagine? I mean, you think about what this guy's doing right now. Can you imagine if he became an unfire believer? He could have reformed the entire nation of Israel. He could have. People follow him. He could have cleaned up. It could have been written of him that he was the most godly king next to David. Or, at the minimum, he was the only godly king who reigned and ruled for God up in the northern kingdom. But it's not that. We'll see that when we get to the end. However, Yehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember those? That's the golden calf stuff. Who had made Israel sin. That is from the golden calves that were at Bethel. There's golden calves set up there at Bethel and at Dan. And again, it's crazy. They come out of Egypt. As soon as they stop there, they're going to meet with God. What do they do? Poof. What do they do? They come out of Egypt. They come up to the campsite where God is going to meet them there at Mount Sinai. What's the first thing that happens? They make a golden golden cow. And and here they are. Years later, hundreds of years later, they set up the golden cows. So Yehu is only a partial reformer and a partial idol worshiper. So he destroys all this other stuff, but he leaves the golden cows. But when he does that, when he leaves these golden cows, he breaks commandment number one and commandment number two. And the Lord, But here's what the Lord says to Yehu, Because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight, this is where we started, we're going to finish here. Because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight, And you have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart. Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. That's like a thank you from God-like thing. And yet I wonder what this man that started thinking it was all about him, I wonder if he's thinking, yeah, that's right, you owe me God. I think that's how Yehu interprets it here. But Yehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. He could have. Why doesn't he? I can tell you why. Because he doesn't allow his prideful heart to surrender. See, the reason people won't turn to Jesus and surrender to Jesus as the Lord of their life is because of pride. They want to be in charge. I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. I I, I just want to do what I want to do. That's why people don't turn to Jesus. Oh, people talk about Jesus, know about Jesus, but if they don't turn to him, that's all it is, is—it's talk. And that's this guy here. He allows his prideful heart to only surrender partially, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So he gets so close, and yet he's so far away. Seems Yehu didn't care about God, only about his own stuff. He was more of a military leader than anything with really no concern for the true way to worship the God of Israel, only to have some good reasons to do some killing. Some commentators say of him he was the best of the bad kings. (laughs) Not exactly what you want to be known for. Hi, I was the best of the bad Christians. Spurgeon writes, he hated one sin and loved the other, proving the fear of God was not a part of his life. If you go back to Hosea tonight, look at chapter 1, verse 4. We only looked at the first two. You're going to see how God viewed all of his actions here. Verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. That's how far they've gone. And Haziel conquered them and all the territory of Israel. Remember the ones they were fighting with we saw in, the, in chapter 9? Well, he, he's conquering now. He's taken it. The territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward. Oops. You know what that is? He, he, he's conquering from the Jordan eastward. And, and the only reason he's able to conquer the people from the Jordan eastward is because God is judging his people. And so all of the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead, and Bashan. Now, we sh- you should look at that and go, on oh, I, oh, I know what's going on here. You know those tribes that didn't want to enter into the promised land? They're the first ones to get picked off. I mean, they're getting picked off right here. As the land that Moses brought them into plus or minus 580 years ago, it's now being taken by the very enemies they were supposed to kill. And why? Because of their sin. Now the rest of the acts of Yehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Yehu rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Yehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. Had a good long run. Please notice that God's mercy and grace does wear out. Does. God is so long-suffering, but there comes a time he's going to act. The two-and-a-half tribes are now getting judged. They're getting taken out. They're getting cut off. They're getting taken over. Remember where these two-and-a-half tribes are located at? Where are they located at? They're on the the wrong side of the Jordan River, on the east side. If you grab your Bible map, you know, here's, here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Jerusalem. Jordan runs down through here. They're on this side. These are the ones who decided not to cross the Jordan River back when Joshua led all the people across. No, 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 we like our land. We're we're herders. There's a lot of ranch land here. You know, we're we're, we're cattle people. Come fight. But please, let us keep our inheritance over here. Well, they got what they asked for back then, and now they're getting what they asked for back then. They're the first to get ripped off. 1400 BC, they got what they wanted. Now, 580 years later, they're the first ones being judged. They're the first to fall because they are unwilling to enter into all of the promises of God. You know, you, you and I, as believers, we all need to be careful what we whine for or whine about because you know what? You whine hard enough or long enough, I mean, I can think of things in my own life. God will let you have it. He will. He'll just say, he'll pull back say, go ahead, let you, I'll let you have it. I've stopped it. I've done miracle to keep you out of it. But you know what? You want it? Okay, go ahead. And he does. They should have, could have entered into the place of rest. All they had to do was cross over and lay hold of the promises of God. But they don't. Team, you and I, we never want to hold back. We want to cross over and we want to claim all that's ours. We do. We want to claim all that's ours today because ultimately we're going to be able to claim what's ours when we get to heaven. Father, we're thankful for the pictures, the words, the, the incredible things that we see here today. And Lord, help us to never underestimate our, 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 our witness, our testimony of our words that we speak.